Romans chapter 9, picking up at verse 30. We're on so chapter 9? I didn't even hear that. Wow. <laughs> <Picking> up, <laughs> I purposely drew a line circle number 10 where the arrow is. This isn't bad. I'm getting a running start, and I suspected there might be a question on something here. Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. What then are we to say, Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it? That is righteousness through faith. But Israel, who did strive for the righteousness that is based on the law, did not succeed in fulfilling the law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works. They have tried to establish their own righteousness. They have tried to build their own position of righteousness vis-a-vis the law rather than allowing God to move in and move through them and mold and shape them and transform them and give them God's righteousness. They've tried to change themselves rather than allow God to change them. And you allow God to change you by living in faith, exercising faith. And when you do that, God puts the spirit of life within you, the spirit of righteousness in you, the Holy Spirit within you, and that changes you. It may not happen immediately. In fact, it almost never does. But it does happen, and over time you see changes occurring. And that's what he's saying here. Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness, they haven't worked to try to make themselves perfect according to the law, have nevertheless attained it. That is, righteousness through faith. Not through doing good works, not through obeying the Ten Commandments, not by abstaining from pork and bacon, not by abstaining from medium steaks, Not by abstaining from clothing with more than one kind of thread. Not by planting their fields with only one kind of seed. Not by obeying the blood purity laws. Not by uh, obeying the the Sabbath work rules and and, and all of their manifold uh, complexities. No, but by faith. Exercising faith, trusting in God, trusting in Christ Jesus. Trusting in God to make them righteous. But Israel, who did strive for the righteousness that is based on the law, i.e., they saw the law, they saw what it required, and they said, okay, i got to change. i got to do this, 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 and not this, not this, and not this. And they set up the rules, and they set up their own interpretations of those rules and how to go about attaining those rules, and they failed because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works as if it was based on their own ability. As if being righteous was dependent upon themselves and not upon Jesus. And that's the point of the next statement. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will make them fall. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That word there, believes, in translation from the Septuagint is pistuon. And from Hebrew, amen. 
word from which we get the word. Amen. Amen. Exercise trusting action. Believing action. Exercise faith. See, I am laying in Zion a stone. Speaking metaphorically, of course, that will make people stumble a rock that will make them fall. That the stumbling stone is for Jews, Jesus himself. Not that you attain righteousness by your own abilities, but by trusting in him. Which runs contrary to all of what the Jews had been taught about how to attain righteousness. Go back to what Abraham did and simply trust in God. Are you crazy? You've got this law. You've got these Ten Commandments. You've got the rules and the regulations. Do them and you'll be righteous. Remember what Jesus, uh, how he responded to the rich young ruler who asked him, you know, I've obey, I obey the law. I do all that is required. And Jesus says, sell all that you have. Follow me. And he walked away dejected because he had many possessions. More literally and more properly understood, he walked away dejected because he was owned by too many other things. He couldn't give up and follow Christ. He couldn't give up the doing of it himself, all of the good works, all of the attaining of the law, and all of his stuff, and simply follow Jesus. What Jesus called for became a stumbling stone for someone like the rich young ruler who believed himself to have attained a form of righteousness and all he had was a couple of things he may have lacked. I.e., he was in this position of Israel here thinking he could attain righteousness but doesn't do it. Hasn't done it. Questions? Before we move on into chapter 10. What was the time period of Isaiah again? I had we studied that disciple. Five hundred years before Jesus. Okay, so it took him five hundred years not to read Isaiah. <laughs> you mean it took him five hundred years to read it? Well, I mean they obviously weren't looking at what they were reading or something. Well, I mean they missed they missed the suffer they misunderstood. Now, to say they missed the suffering servant teachings out of Isaiah is not true. They knew of them. There, the Hebrew scholars quoted them. But they applied them to all of Israel. The whole people of Israel are the suffering servant. They do what the Jews did in the concentration camps in Europe. They viewed themselves as being a suffering servant people. Whereas the church looked at it and said, no, Christ is the suffering servant. You might say the culmination and embodiment of all of Israel. And that way draw a connection between their interpretation and the church's interpretation. But very early on, prior to 70 AD, the church had interpreted, Christians had interpreted, because it's contained in the Gospels, the suffering servant from Isaiah as being Christ Jesus himself. Likewise, Paul is using it right here. In the 50s. They read it, they just didn't understand it or interpret it that way. It just seems like they uh, they were really put Moses up on the Mosaic laws on a pedestal. And that, so this almost dilutes Moses, obviously. They, they looked to Abraham as their genetic 
ancestor and look to Moses for how to live their religious life. And what Paul is saying, you look to Abraham as to how you live your religious life. And Moses to understand why that's the only way to do it. So it does devalue Moses to an extent. It changes the position of the law from what it had been before to a new understanding. But you know, if, if they don't, uh, if they couldn't accept Jesus as the Messiah, how, how can they understand this as the being the stumbling stone? If they don't accept him as the Messiah, how can we judge him if they, if they can't accept him as the Messiah? They have not, as we will find out in the next chapter, they haven't received the light, the enlightenment necessary to understand that. Who are we to judge them? Paul can, but not Paul, him, no, Paul himself doesn't necessarily judge them. He says what's necessary to have an assurance of salvation, which he's going to talk about in the next chapter. When the law was laid out, it, it, it's a shame that it, in there it didn't make clear... By the way, you can't keep this. You know? And that's why you need... going to rewrite Moses. That's why you need the sacrifices. That never, that never penetrated. And so now you've got generation after generation you know, following the traditions of the law, thinking that's what we need to do. The sacrificial system predated the law. <coughs> oh, I know, but I'm talking And was about codified within the law. Absolutely, but if, but if that didn't become the focus of the people's everyday lives because they were busy doing all of the little things, how many of them actually even went inside the tabernacle other than just to, to bring the sacrifice there? They never really saw any of that. So it was it was distant, and anything that we know is distant is going to be forgotten. And what's going to be... And that is precisely what happened to the Jewish people, the Hebrew people as a whole, and the Jewish people in particular, repeatedly. Because the religion was pushed so far away, it became a distant thing. It became a ritual thing that was distant from them, some things you just had to do, like paying taxes, that kind of thing. And essentially, it is the same thing. And they did it out of obligation, but then they found meaning in the spiritual practices of the people who lived around them. And they started adopting the religions of the Philistines and the Hiveites and the Parasites and the Jebusites because that was fun stuff. I mean, you got to have sex in those religions. And then you could pay for it in your own by taking that lamb down there and, and, and having a sacrifice to cover it. Didn't they marry into all of that? Too? Yes, they did. You know, Solomon like had a real problem. All over yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but you also have to remember this. We are reading Jewish Judaism through a couple of pairs of lenses. We're reading it firstly through the current day lens of Pharisaic Judaism, which is current modern Orthodox Judaism at least. The Judaism that won. <coughs> In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were simply one sect where the law was important, but the sacrificial system was still present and operational, which was run by the Sadducees. You go back in time all the way back into history to the diaspora Judaism into Babylon and you find the evolutionary development of a law-based religion based upon the Torah, the teachings of, of Moses, the, 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 the first 
five books of the Bible, essentially, which existed, they, they lifted, the, the sacrificial system was suspended while they were in captivity. What do you do? Where do you get your, your religious warm fuzzies? You get it by studying the law, studying the Torah, listening to what the prophet said, even though it was uncomfortable. Learning from that, and it became an intellectualized and law-oriented religion, far more so than it was prior to the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. Don't some of us still do that today? Of course we do. But what I'm saying is, is this is how it evolved. Prior to the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians, the, the concept of a law-based religion, the law was there, it functioned, but it was far less important in the day-to-day -day life of your average Jew than it became in captivity in Babylon and then after the second temple was built and the sacrificial system was reestablished in Israel all the way up to the time of Jesus. It became important in captivity and maintained its importance when they went back to to Palestine, and then when they became diaspora again amongst the Gentiles uh, prior to the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD, and then really afterwards, it became a law-based religion, an intellectualized, scripture-based religion, and less and less and less a sacrificial system, until finally the, the temple was destroyed and they couldn't do it anymore, then it had to become completely a law-based religion. That's why the Pharisees won, because they ran the only place where that could happen, the synagogues. So it flipped after, in 70 AD? Well, it, it, over a period of time. Yeah. When, if, you, if you chart the development of Jewish religion, you note that while the law and all that existed prior to the destruction of the first temple in the 500s, the people didn't seem to have any involvement in the religious life except at the sacrificial point, plus the Ten Commandments. So kind of like the Catholics today that go strictly just to... Um, they, do the, they do the minimum. Yeah. They, so they, the, they go for so Mass. They go to confession and, and that's, that's it. it. That's it. None. They don't go to Bible study. They don't do anything else. It's like, people, it's like people who come to church here on Sunday morning. They don't go to Sunday school and they don't, they don't go to Bible study and they don't work. They don't build habitat houses. They don't do anything. Mm -hmm. Except come to church on Sunday morning and that's it. That's an example of it. They do the barest minimum that the rules stipulate. And that was a problem that was rife throughout Israel. And was the reason, as understood by the prophets, the reason why God continually was punishing the people, both in the northern kingdom and then in the southern kingdom. Because they had deserted the ways of Moses. Then when the temple was destroyed in the 500s by the Babylonians and the people were carted off into captivity, they really had to find something else to become cohesive around, and that was the Torah. And they did. And rabbinic, Pharisaic Judaism really started to come into an existence in the Babylonian captivity. When they came back from Babylon, they brought it with them. And it grew in its importance, and the importance of studying the Torah then studying the prophets, 
and incorporating the religious practices as stipulated within the Torah became very important to your common people, especially those who had a degree of education. Um, and, and as a result, you started to see what we think of as Pharisaic Judaism today in Orthodox Judaism really in ascendancy in all of its culturalisms. And all of the religious rules became culturalized, highly culturalized. And then when the Second Temple was destroyed in 70 AD, they had no choice but to then solidify as one one religion instead of multiple denominations with various PowerPoints because of the natures of their fo foci, they became one. They had to orbit around the synagogues in diaspora outside of, of Palestine. And the Pharisees ran it, so guess who got to make the rules? So and they, they did. would it be safe to say that the Orthodox Jews to this day even follow more of a Mosaic law than anything else as their they follow an interpretation of the Mosaic Law as codified in the Talmud, the Mishnah in, in, in the interpretations of the Mosaic Law yeah they go back to the Mosaic Law but they go back to the Mosaic Law through the interpreters mm -hmm. down through history as codified in the Talmud especially that's how they got 699 different rules <laughs> yeah <laughs> and interpretations of rules you know, it's the, for example, the interpretation of what it means to work and not work on the Sabbath day. Mm -hmm. And my, fa my famous and most favorite one is, can you eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath day? The answer is no, you can't eat the egg because the chicken had to work to produce it. And your animals, your livestock aren't supposed to work either. So you can't eat the egg, but you can eat the chicken that gets hatched from that egg so long as that chicken doesn't hatch on Sunday or Saturday. On the Sabbath. So, I mean, they had these codified rules. Oh, they can't use elevators? or Yeah. Well, they can use an elevator, but they have to use one that doesn't require you pushing a button. Right. Because right. <laughs> that's work. For a, for a Jew in New York City for a while. They had Sabbath, in Israel, they have Sabbath day elevators that run on the Sabbath day, uh -huh. and they're always in motion. They never, they come to a store, floor, the doors open, they automatically close, and they go to the next floor. They go all the way to the top, all the way down, all the way to the top, all the way down. But you don't have to call it, and you don't have to tell it what floor. You right. just get you just on wait. when you want, and get off when These you want. These guys use the stairs. Yeah, I was thinking. See, to me, that's more exercise. work than... <laughs> that's that's right. <laughs> pushing... A, Our office was on the 12th floor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And these guys used the stairs. But yep. you see, that to me that's more work. Yeah. But, yeah. but according to them, it's not. While pushing that button was work. And that's instant gratification. They should have learned just to lean against it while they were looking. Yeah. Look, <laughs> oh, oh, I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> or ask some Gentile to do it for you. There you go. <laughs> But anyway, we're we're way beyond the, the subject. The point that's that's essentially. I don't know how we got into that. Was this the type of people? Well, the type of people Paul was trying to. If this is what he was dealing with, he was dealing he with problems. at this point in time, the kind of Jew that he would be dealing with would mostly be Pharisee from Palestine, i.e., the brethren of James would be full-fledged Pharisaic Jews. 
And, but in, in the diaspora outside of Palestine, many of the early converts to Christianity from the Jewish community were Hellenistic Jews who practiced the rules on the Sabbath day. They kept the Sabbath day. They wouldn't necessarily eat pork but at any time, but they were not really sticklers about the full dietary regulation thing. And they, they circumcised their male children, but other than that, I mean, they blended beautifully, for the most part, into the Gentile communities, with the exception that they didn't make sacrifice to the emperor or go to other temples. And they wouldn't marry. Yeah, they, had, yeah, they were very careful about intermarriage. But for, compared to Jews from Palestine, right. Hellenistic Jews were very different people. And that's and, who he was converting, right? And the early, the early Christians from the Jewish communities that Paul converted when he was in Corinth and when he was in Thessalonica and when he would have been in Asia Minor and in Rome, many of the earliest uh, Jewish Christians there, the indigenous ones, had been Hellenistic Jews. And Paul actually communicated very well with them because he originally had been one, spoke Greek as his native language. And had become a Pharisaic Jew when he went to Israel and studied under Gamaliel. So he began as a Hellenistic Jew, became a full-fledged, hardcore Pharisee, and then <laughs> became a Christian. And in communicated better with the Hellenistic Jews again and then with the Gentiles at large. And the fights he had were with the brethren of James, the really Jewish, the Pharisaic Jewish Christians from Palestine. And it's those folk who strive for righteousness and can't attain it. And they're getting mad about these dirty, stinking Gentiles who get in cheap, don't have to cut on themselves, don't have to obey the dietary regulations, don't have to become Jews, and they get righteousness, and we see them, them actually, when they live by faith, God's changing them. Wow. But they're mad about it in many cases. Hence, they're coming along after Paul and telling the churches, like in Galatia, sorry, gentlemen, Paul didn't tell you the whole story, and we got a pair of scissors here. No, I, I accept the the interpretation that the stumbling stone is referring to Jesus, but the way we describe it and elaborate on it, it it almost seems like the stumbling block was the law itself. That's what made them trip up. Now, if I try to reconcile the two, um, test me out on this. So, if I try to reconcile the two, the law was a schoolmaster, as we've used that term. In another sense, it was a it was a shadow. It's not the substance. It's a reflection of if God were walking around here among us, mm -hmm. here's what he would look like. Mm -hmm. and, and so in that sense, the law was a shadow. Jesus was the concrete mm -hmm. instantiation in human form of God in human what flesh. Jesus and said. guess what? His shadow that was cast looked like the law. And right. so in that sense, he fulfilled the law. So I can say that, yeah, the law and Jesus are really one and the same in that Jesus lived the law, the only one that's recorded. And, and the, two, the two became one, and there's the stumbling block. Correct. And so you still get to the law, at least in the way I've it's, always thought this through before. The stumbling is, they're stumbling over the fact that Jesus himself provides 
righteousness to to favors, not to people who try to mimic him. Not to people who try to mimic the law. We only have two laws, then. Love the Lord your God, mm-hmm. love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. The rest of the law mm-hmm. is commentary. <laughs> even the other even the Ten Commandments in many respects are commentary. And because if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to violate the second half of the Ten Commandments. If you're loving the Lord your God, you're not going to violate the first half of the Ten Commandments. I mean, come on. And if you are if you are living with the law within you, i.e., as Jeremiah would say, written on your heart, i.e., as Paul would say, Christ Jesus living within you, then you're going to discover you are more and more and more conforming to those standards, that, that standard of the law, loving the Lord your God, loving your neighbor as yourself, not by any effort that you're doing, but by simply living in faith, trusting in Jesus. It seems like they strayed and the object of their faith became the law as opposed to the lawgiver. They ended up worshiping the law and not God, i.e. they engaged in a kind of idolatry. Well, I mean God in this case. They ended up engaging in a form of idolatry. Moses was FedEx. Yes, he delivered it. He carried it. This is the messenger. Well, yeah, and they actually in many respects were in a sense worshiping Moses in a sense. But not really. It was the law itself that they were worshiping. And then by connection, their ability to mimic it or to approximate it or to live up to it. And they viewed righteousness as something that they built, they attained. It was all focused on themselves trying to live up to the requirement of the law. Jesus becomes the stumbling stone because he says, no, it's not... By you doing it, I have fulfilled it. I've already done that. I embody it. Faith in me, and you will receive righteousness. But they were, you know, what he was, what Stan was saying about the reflection and the shadow. Yes. It's so Greek. Yeah, it's, right? it's, it's so Greek, and he was trying to convert all these Greeks. He and it sounds like he and he was with his Greek background, and it sounds like he really didn't give a big one about the. Jews that want to say Jews. That's what it sounds like. Oh, it he sounds did. like he, he, he said, with Gentiles, I'll be Gentiles. With Jews, right. I'll be Jews. He believed you could be a cultural Jew and still trust in Jesus for salvation. He had a problem with that at all. Now, he didn't have a problem with that. But he wasn't making, it doesn't, what we've read so far, in fact, yeah. most of all, <laughs> yes. we don't get the sense that he's trying to reach out. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. You got it. That's his job. Peter was the apostle to the circumcision. He is <laughs> yes. the apostle to the Gentiles. It seems like there's a big there was, divide here. There you know? was a, a division in the early church. It occurred at the Council of Jerusalem in which essentially they told Paul, you go to the uncircumcised, we'll go to the circumcised, and supposedly we won't force the Gentiles to become Jews if you don't make us give up the dietary regulations. Well, did they not understand that Jesus went to both sides? I'm confused about that. Something. No, that like because you have to understand, Jesus was one of them, yeah. one of the Jews, and Judaism is for the Jews, and if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you ought to be a Jew. But Jesus went 
to the tax collectors and to the non to the Samaritan story. Yes, you know, of course he did. But so that wasn't what that wasn't the important piece. Tax collectors. That wasn't what they Working for the Roman government, those evil tur- traitors. Matthew was a traitor. No, there was just a little bit of Jesus speaking to Gentiles. He mostly spoke to Jews about Judaism. Yeah, he was, for the most, or to Samaritans. Who he spoke to the Samaritans to run well, and preached to their whole city full and proclaimed the gospel to them too. But they're, uh, they are mixed breed descendants. Of mostly people who were imported from outside and a few leftovers of the northern kingdom. Well, who did he send his disciples to? They sent him the lost the sheep of the house of Israel, which is actually ends up being Everybody. out to the Gentiles. Mark goes to Egypt. Thomas goes to India. Andrew goes to southern Russia. Peter ends up going all the way to Rome, although he's the apostle to the to the to the circumcision. Huh. Matthew's gospel, well, Matthew is principally responsible for the uh, hypothetical Q document. We'll study that when we do, do the gospels. But uh, he's, he, was, he was in and around Antioch. And so, I mean, Luke is a Gentile himself. Mm-hmm. But he's quoting and researching amongst mostly Jewish Christians. But he himself was a Gentile. That's so, if it wasn't for this guy... We might not be here. That's what they really it, if it wasn't for Paul. Paul, you know, I mean, there might have been another guy named Paul. <laughs> God may have chosen somebody else, but it's interesting because interesting interpretation. When Judas died, the twelve, the eleven chose a replacement, Matthias, at the very beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, and after that choosing, we don't hear nothing about the dude. He disappears. He's not mentioned again, as far as I know, other than in passing. He, what did he do? I don't know. And as, as some people have said, the disciples chose Matthias to fill up and make the twelve. Paul, uh, God chose Paul. <laughs> and, that, and if you look at the Acts of the Apostles... The first third is about what was going on in Jerusalem. The rest of it is about what Paul did. And it's the Acts of the Apostles. So, I mean, you know, come on. Because the question is, how many apostles can there be? And there was one argument that there could only be 12. Well, that that would mean that Paul couldn't be one, nor all the other people that Paul identifies as such as James, the brother of the Lord. (laughs) So, we're way off topic. We're getting ready to move into chapter 10. Any other questions? Keeping in mind what we just talked about, the stumbling stone. What he said about these Jews, Israel, who did strive for the righteousness that is based on the law, but did not succeed in fulfilling it. Remember, there were no chapters and verses in the original. So, brothers... And Adelphoi here means brothers and sisters. It's not just the guys who are listening. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. Who's the them? 
James says Israel. Mine says Israel. Israel. That's what mine says. Israel is that they may be saved. A lot of these translations do use a pronoun, though. They, mm-hmm. King yeah. James, I guess, does say Israel. Israel. I don't know what the original, whether it literally says Israel or whether it's a pronoun. Them. But it, it at least is talking to those who stumbled over the stumbling stone. He's praying to them. Right? Is what for them. Would say, right? Literally for them. Yeah. Is that they may be saved. I can testify that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own. That was what the reference was in the preceding chapter. That's what he's been hitting on for a long time now. Seeking to establish their own, their own what? Their own righteousness. They have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who faiths, who exercises faith. So the law, as the way of attaining righteousness, is over with. It's now through faith in Christ. For Christ is the end of the law, the culmination of the law, uh, the telos. Rather than the abolishment. No, not the abolishment. There's something different. The word is telos, which means end, but it also means destination. It means, means culmination. Back to that picture of the shadow and the substance. It's yeah, exactly. Take the law if the law was the shadow of the substance, which is Jesus, then you follow the shadow, cast back all the way to who casts it. And you follow him, yeah. not the shadow. Exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. So, I can testify that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. For being, so they're not entirely out of it. It's just that they don't have an enlightenment that they need to understand this about Jesus. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. They're more interested in their own righteousness. And seeking to establish their own. They have not submitted to God's righteousness, which is in Christ Jesus. For Christ is the end, the culmination, the focus of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who faiths who exercises faith and that utilization that utilization of the word believe there is probably one of the worst examples of it it's not simple mental assent it's then acting upon that assent Moses oh wow look he's quoting Moses <laughs> Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law that the person who does these things will live by them but the righteousness that comes from faith says no, notice he's contrasting mm-hmm. with Moses I mean a, a good solid Pharisaic Jew I mean you're looking for a rock to throw by about now <laughs> But the righteousness that comes from faith says, but, do you really want to put a but in there? (laughs) But the righteousness that comes from faith says, do not say in your heart, 
who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. To rema tes pistuos. To rema, which is another word for word. But it means more literally utterance. And not so much logos, written word. Rema means more utterance. Word, yes, but vocalized, i.e., the word put into action, the word spoken, if you will. The word, and here again, that's Rema, the word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. I'm going to stop right there for a minute. So, what happened to all the abyss and all that stuff? <laughs> well, he's making a quotation here. He's, he's drawing imagery here. You don't go outside to seek Christ, yank him down out of heaven or up from the abyss, from Sheol, the abode of the righteous dead. Jesus isn't dead in the righteous dead sleeping zone. Jesus is not in, just in heaven it's right here and within you. So you don't go and seek the law outside yourself. You don't go and seek Christ outside yourself. Notice that interesting switch that he pulls in there. Do not say in your heart who will ascend in heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word, rhema, the spoken word, is near you. On your lips and in your heart. It's within you, like breath. That's getting close to the Trinity again. Uh huh, it is. <laughs> it is, exactly. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So it's not separate from you, it's not something that you go have to get. It, it's not even something that you go get here in your Torah. It's not something apart from you. It's the very presence of Christ alive within you. It's the very presence of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit that is living inside of you. On your heart. On your lips. That is a, that is a powerful drawing there. I mean, think about Jeremiah again. The word written on the heart. Not on tablets of stone but on hearts of faith. Here it's right here and within you. And it's right here and within you to do the following. Because if you... Now, my translation here says confess. Uh, that's appropriate. There might be some other way to render that. Proclaim, confess, affirm, but it's stronger than just affirm. If you confess, because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and faith in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will 
be saved. Doesn't that seem like believe works better than faith? No, not necessarily. If for, for um, I'm back up. Because if you confess with your lips, make a verbal affirmation, i.e. an external proclamation, here with your lips, that doesn't mean that if you don't have the ability to speak, you can't be saved, by the way. I've heard that used, oh, by the way. Yeah. That's not oh, what he means. Crap. It's not what he means. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus, it's not something that you, that you keep inside you and don't profess out. You proclaim it. You don't, you know, not, you're not an undercover Christian. You don't keep it secretly hidden. Closet Christian. Closet Christian. Couch potato Christian. You articulate it. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and faith in your heart not just passively believe, but place your heart into action, i.e. Your, your inner emotional and intellectual self. Here, in the, in the word, let me double check, the word used here is cardia, which is the seat of intellect. I mean, we think of that as that organ that pumps blood around. Well, the Jews and the Gentiles at this point in time move the brain from ear to ear, from the head to the heart. You thought with your ear. You felt. We, we feel emotions with our heart. They felt emotions in their gut. We sometimes do that, and we still do that to a degree, when, when we get very nervous and we say we have butterflies in our stomach. Yeah. Or, my, <laughs> that, my, or my gut feeling is. Gut feeling <laughs> is. There are echoes of that still today, but for the most part... They move the, their thinking center from their heads to their hearts and their emotional center from their hearts to their guts. And hence, they can talk about the bowels being refreshed means that they were, their spirits were lifted. <laughs> it's all those great things. A spiritual colonic, yeah. This, this talks about the intellect and the will. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. Yeah, that's kind of important. But see, it's more than just your mind. It's your mind and your will. Your mind and your desire. willingness, desire, willingness to actually do something with it. Faith, exactly. And believe or faith in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. That seems pretty point blank to me. <laughs> no, God, but Paul hits you with a hammer sometimes, and then later he comes back and says something nice. Like previously, he said, um, God can harden the heart of whoever he wants to. Mm -hmm. Okay? And we say, ooh. Then he says something nice, and he's all forgiven. Yeah, if, you, if you adhere to the rules right here, that's one of the rules again there. Oh, one of the like. rules? Okay. Yeah, it's a big one, though. <laughs> It's like the only one. If you believe he would believe in Jesus and he was raised from the dead. I would say okay. that Paul here is articulating a point of assurance. This we know works. This we know is true. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and faith in your heart that God raised him from the dead, not just believe, but place your full measure of of belief and will into motion, hence articulating and then doing. 
you will be saved. No question about that. That doesn't say anything as to whether or not God can save people who don't do that. It just says, if you do this, you will be saved. For one believes, one fades with the heart and is righteousified. The word here is dikaiosune. Justified is correct, but God's righteousness is stamped on you. You may be the dirtiest, rottenest sinner you've ever met. The nastiest, pork-eating, blood-eating Gentile you ever want to meet. Don't matter. If you, for one, fades with the heart and so is justified, righteousified, considered as righteous as Christ, treated that way. And one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. Now, question is, is that two different events? Is that two different events? Because that's kind of how it reads. One believes, I'm going to use believe. One believes with the heart and so is justified. One confesses with the mouth and so is saved. So one, okay, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And this is going on in here. All right. Suddenly you're justified. Wow. And then you speak it out and boom, you're saved. Is that two separate events? I don't know how you can have one without the other. They're about one. <clears throat> it's uh, kind of a sequence, I would think. Sequential event. Yeah. To be able to confess with your mouth. What you know in your heart. You have you to be known. have it in here. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's like you light a match and you stick it to the end of a piece of dye. Like the lighting of a match is the belief in the heart. Mm-hmm. And the speaking out is the effect of what that belief in your heart produces, and you can't contain the explosion. It is the action of the of the pistol here. It's the action of the faith. If you truly believe, you want to speak out. It just it it just comes automatic. Here is a way to think about it. The second half is the outward and visible. You could say audible sign or indication of the inward and spiritual grace which is the classic definition of a sacrament yes my systematic theology demands I speak sacramentally here For one believes with the heart and so is justified. That's the inward and spiritual. One confesses with the mouth and so is saved. Hence, the first part, outward invisible sign, is the act, in sacramental terms, of baptism. Inward and spiritual grace... It's the spiritual reality of being in Christ that baptism externally proclaims in Christ. Immersion into Jesus, being plunged into Jesus. So, yeah, it is actually the same thing. It's two sides of the same coin. It's one is the expression of the other. One is impossible without the other. True. If it's true. Now, here's the next question. 
is that analogy does start to break down. What if you only have the first part? One fades with the heart, and so is justified. Can you stop there and not confess with the lips? Is it possible? Yes. Paul, you know what, Paul, you get back to what Paul said earlier? Yeah, God chose for you not to do that. You can accept it, but he's already chosen your heart and your heart. Sorry. I think you can make that choice yourself also. If you... God lets you. Okay. And it may not Strong. be an immediate expression, but you will come to do it eventually. Assuming you have time. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. okay, I'm going to say very clearly here, if... If it is your choice not to confess with your lips, there's a problem with the reality of the inner. It may not be true. In fact, I would say that's almost a certainty. I wouldn't be 100%, but I'm at 98.8 on that. If you refuse, I know people who have refused to, to get baptized. They just flat out refuse to. And I said, why? Do you believe that this is true? Yes. Well, then why not? Because I don't want to. Something wrong with your will there. There's something seriously wrong with your will there. This is, I, I see this in that sacramental characteristic. Yes, ontologically speaking, belief with the heart and so is justified is the core of it. It's the inward and spiritual grace. But if that's really there, and if you have the opportunity to, then the outward sign will follow, i.e., in this case, with your lips. Okay, but the grace is unmerited. Unearned, undeserved. Undeserved. And occasions. Given to you, though. This. Occasions the outward and audible sign. Sure, makes that happen. If you're fighting the making the outward an audible sign, is the grace functioning, or are you denying it? Are you resisting it? I'm sorry, I lost you here. Is this confessing with the mouth? Is that the same as baptism? Is that what that's what I. That's what I. That is the connection that I'm making in my interpretation. The confessing with your mouth is the outward invisible sign, i.e., baptism. It doesn't have to be just baptism. No, it's That's taking communion. It's professing your faith. It's uh, yeah, there's you could go any way that is sacramentally oriented. I'm using that as an example. So if you refuse to make the outward and audible sign, are you denying the presence and function of grace? I think if it's a willful refusal, then yes, you are. And something's wrong. There's something wrong with your faith. With your pistilo. Well, I think people get caught up. You know, you can in your heart know that that there is a God, and and that you know there are certain things that that He expects of us. But we can be so caught up in the world, yes, that we kind of just keep stuffing that back and saying, "Not right now." Which is <laughs> then the question: Where? What priority does God therefore have in your life? Well, it's certainly not the top priority. And, and, and but we think that 
We yeah, can just get through life without. And in the last second, we'll take care of that part. But where? Yeah. Who is there for? Is your idol? I mean, well, you're. It's, well, it's a version of exactly. idolatry. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and but people have a tendency to get caught up in that. But I don't think it necessarily means that they have no belief at all. Well, Satan believes in God. But it's not faith. But it's not faith. Right. That's why the distinction here is important. Why okay. I just don't like the translation of belief. Satan and his demons. You know, the demons recognized Jesus. They knew who he was. And I'm going to point out also what it says here. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Not the doctrine of the consubstantial humanity and divinity of Jesus. Not the doctrine of the Trinity. Not all sorts of things that we think are important. A simple statement. Jesus raised, God was raised by the, from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead by God. God raised him from the dead. And what that entirely means, we're not alone. Christ is here now. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear being separated from God. Christ bore that and defeated it in his resurrection. So it's not a precept, a series of precepts that you're exercising faith in. It's the one who was raised from the dead. And what that means for us. And it's a simple proclamation. Some people really want to wait down here and, and, and expand on the, what you're supposed to believe in to an extreme that... Uh, Paul didn't seem to think important. Otherwise, he would have detailed that. Oh, yeah. All right? Questions before we move on? As we're in the middle paragraph, and I want to finish the paragraph. Yes? Jesus said, believe in God and do unto, do unto your brother as yourself. Right? And Paul says, oops, just one more. By believing this, by... Um, Confessing with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart, exercising faith in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that whole action there is believing in God. And then the follow the, what Paul. follows from it, yeah, and then what follows from it is how you treat your neighbor. But if you don't believe, if you're in a religion that doesn't believe in the Holy Trinity, then there's that. My question is, what do you think of Christ? That results in questions about the Holy Trinity. That results in questions about the consubstantial divinity and humanity of Jesus. But fundamentally speaking, precision there is not important. Not, not, not at this point. But, I mean, and, and as far as the Judaism doesn't believe that Christ was the Savior, do no, you? No, they don't, they don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So, so they would not believe that, that he them? was resurrected. Right, they the would dead. deny that. Right. So then they would not qualify and Paul. Does that mean they're not going to get in heaven? That's not what Paul said. Not according, not by this, not by this process. Not by the easy process. Okay. <laughs> not by the sure one. Some of them are still trying to get there by the law. Yeah. The Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection at all. No. Well, and Abraham didn't believe in Jesus. He didn't even know who Jesus was. No, but he had faith in God. Mm -hmm. 
He had faith with the light that he had been given. I just want to make sure nobody's a here. <laughs> Looking out for my brothers. I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> but, this is a, but this is a great gospel, great good news. Mm-hmm. Paul's making it very clear. You don't have to go any further than Jesus Christ. And, you, and here's what you need to confess. Mm-hmm. And, and it's all centers around his resurrection. It's not. That's, 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 that's the veracity. To. You don't have he to. was who he said he was. Then, right. once I centered on Christ, then I can go to what Christ said. This is first. not Why not do it first? Because what does it matter what Jesus said if, if you haven't accepted that Jesus was the Son of God? Well, How do I know he's the Son of God? If you go first to what Christ said instead of what Christ did, you end up with works again. What if becomes Christ a, is just another prophet. If you have faith... Why do you just have works? If you believe in God and yeah. believe in, in okay. treat, treating fellow men fair, like yourself, then how do how do you go about treating fellow men or people fair, i.e., as as yourself? How how do you go about living the life that Christ has called you to live by your own will? In which case, you get the same thing that the Jews were stuck in back here trying to establish their own righteousness. Now, not by following the law, but by following the example of Christ. This is almost like the righteousness of the church rather than the righteousness of Jesus. It's the righteousness of Jesus enabling the church then to follow what Jesus says rather than being saved by doing what Jesus says, i.e. keeping these rules and regulations, keeping the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, for instance. But he only had two rules. Well, but you expand it out with the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, if you want to go with what Jesus said, okay, boy, we got a whole lot of That's the next lesson, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, 2010. <laughs> That's after Romans. That's after Romans. Now, I understand what you're saying, but the first step apparently here is, in the sure path, is belief in what Jesus did. He died for us. He was raised for us. The whole, that's a whole part of the same thing. And then... Because of that, and because he is in you, then you hear what he said, and you do it. Because you want to now. Like Stan said, that gives the, those two commandments the veracity. <laughs> well, what I take away from it is basically, if you know in your heart and in your mind, and you confess that, yes, Christ rose from the dead. Christ Jesus is Lord. And he's Lord then it just is an automatic thing. Because of who you therefore lives within you. To, yeah. It's because Christ then lives within you yeah. and enables it and empowers it. Right. Instead of saying, oh, now I've got to go and treat it. other people good. Now <laughs> no, I've got to go and turn the other naturally. cheek. I can't turn the other cheek. Are you crazy? They'll hit me again. They'll hit me again. I mean, I'm, I'm serious. If you want to go down through the whole list of things, it's a pretty big list that follows from the two. And, and that's not even getting to the, the Ten Commandments and the rest of it. I don't think it happens overnight. But of course it doesn't happen overnight. The whole essence of sanctification is it occurs good. over a long period of time. Yeah. But it starts with a simple trusting in Jesus. Trusting in Paul. Tr- well... <laughs> Trusting that Paul wasn't lying to us. Okay, I'll say it this way. Trust, trusting, 
trusting in Paul's interpretation of this whole thing. Very good. I like that. that if you want to say it that way, <laughs> fine. But uh, I don't have a problem in trusting in Paul's interpretation here because this coheres well with my own understanding, my own faith, my own heart, my own experience and what I've seen throughout the history of the churches. Every time the church comes back to this, it comes alive. Every time the church descends into works righteousness and tries to save itself and be righteous itself, it ends up dying. When the church returns to Paul, it comes alive. People are saved. People enter into, good, into relationships with God. Good works are done. But when the church turns away from this and to establishing its own righteousness, it dies. Isn't this exactly consistent with what Jesus himself said when he said, believe in me and you shall be saved? Isn't Paul saying the same thing in this? This is coherent with it, yes. Well, John said the same thing in John 3.16. Yeah, but if you're, if, you're, if you're trying to make the case that Paul is somehow not speaking the same... Um, theology that Jesus himself spoke yeah. I'm just asking is, is that not an example of what Jesus himself said I don't Paul no, I, I think what Paul would say was if, if you get your head right here mm -hmm. and do it this way then we've got the law and the prophets to guide us and, and, and the schoolmaster no, yes. no problem because that was the scriptures I'm, I'm interested if we ever get to it to see what scripture is quoting here because yes. that's what they had they didn't have a whole lot of what Jesus said at this point most of what Jesus said was all about following the law. What they have at this right point is in, in circulation in the 50s is what, what scholars have identified as the saying source. By the 50s AD, what was in circulation from Jesus' teaching was the saying source, which became the nucleus of Matthew and Luke's teachings of Jesus sections. All right. That was what was in circulation of the teachings of Jesus. Unless you went and you asked Peter what he said or, or anybody else who was there what he said. Then you could get it from them in however they remembered it and articulated it. Um, so, yeah. And we don't know what Paul knew of the totality of that either other than those instances where he actually cites it or draws an allusion to it. There's much of this throughout here that seems to echo lots of chunks of what Jesus himself said in places. How about that where he says, Scripture says, you have any The Scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. What Scripture do you have there? Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Do you have the citation for verse 11? No. That sounds like something Jesus said himself. Of course, there's Isaiah 28, 16. That sounds like it would be. Isaiah. It sounds exactly what it would be. Well, you have to remember, every time Paul says something from Scripture, he's quoting the Old Testament. Yeah. Isaiah what? Uh, 28, 16. 28, 16. Chapter 28, verse 16. Isaiah 28, 16. No shame, man, if you believe in it. Read it. You find it. Whoever got it. Got it. All right, got it. It's, it's there. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You're, you've got glasses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Therefore, you go ahead. My, my sinus is a drain. Okay. <laughs> Therefore, thus said the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. That's your that He that believeth shall not make haste. 
Huh. Other translations of he that believeth shall not be ashamed. Mm. And I've also got uh, 49.23. Isaiah? Isaiah 49.23. Read it. Uh, Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. No one who believes in him who waits for him. Who faiths in him will be put to shame. So he's drawing from Isaiah there. Hmm. Paul does that all the time. Draws from the Hebrew Bible, actually from the Septuagint, the Greek translation, and applies it. He's done it prior chapter, he's doing it here. Didn't Jesus do a whole bunch of that? Jesus too? did it a lot too. He would cite from, from the Hebrew Bible. You have something else? No. I'm just looking to see what my translation of the <laughs> 28 was, and it's very close to what Lisa read. When Paul quotes scripture, he's quoting the Hebrew Bible, but usually he's quoting the Greek translation of it, the Septuagint. And that's why you sometimes get interesting differences between what Paul says and what your Old Testament may say. <laughs> okay. So what, what my Bible was, what he's against is what what they did with with the source material with Precisely. Bible, you know, not not throwing it out. And he's it not he's ours. not opposed to the Hebrew Bible. He's opposed to how it's been twisted and changed and adjusted to make following it and not God the way of salvation. I mean it was their Bible, it's still our Bible. Yeah, exactly. And, is, and they knew it as probably better than we did because oh, well, they, they probably had to learn absolutely. it as Jews to mm-hmm. get get in the door. Let's finish the paragraph. (laughs) For there is no distinction, underline this, there is no distinction, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. And by that he means Gentile, all Gentiles, non-Jews. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That sounds like a song. That sounds right what's out the, of the song. What's the source of verse 13? Because that's a quote. Joel 2. Oh, Joel, Joel 2, 32. Yeah. Joel, look it up. Joel 2, 32. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you know what's interesting? Paul, when he's doing this, he is he's, he's using that the Old Testament scripture where previously they referred to, they thought of it only as God. Mm-hmm. He's now tying it, hey, it's Jesus. It's one and the same. And what he exactly and he's actually really nailing down this because these Jewish Christians are listening to this being read in the church, and they're hearing Paul quote from their own scriptures to them. That has more authority than any other argument he could have in his application and interpretation of their own scriptures. And that's one of his most frequently used logical arguments. Yeah, absolutely. 
He does it again and again. And sometimes it's extended references like to Abraham and Sarah or Abraham and Hagar. Moses. Moses. Uh, He's drawing from multiple resources throughout the entire Old Testament. He also quotes a few places directly Jesus, makes a lots of allusions to Jesus, a lot of them. But um, he's not as heavy in quoting Jesus as he is in quoting Old Testament sources, which is interesting. Well, would he have had those writings available to him he, at that time? He might have had a Septuagint with him. There's an interesting study was done on Paul's use of the Septuagint. It seems as though he frequently was quoting from memory. But there is a question as to whether or not he's quoting from an edition of the Septuagint that we just simply don't have any longer. Um, But they seem to be pretty standard. Um, He would have had access to Septuagints in, in Jewish synagogues throughout the diaspora Judaism as well as possibly amongst some more wealthy uh, members of his churches who had been God-fearers and were studying the Jewish faith by reading the Septuagint, the Hebrew Bible in Greek. Would he have had access to the writings of the Mark, Luke, and John. The well, the Gospels hadn't been written yet. Okay, so, so how could he then but be quoting? He would have had... It seems pretty clear that he had access, and a few times he quotes it, he had access to the saying source that was circulating about it. Because while the Gospels hadn't been written until 70 and later, Q, which is the saying source, was first took its formation sometime in the late 30s in Aramaic and was translated into Greek sometime by the late 40s and seems to have been in circulation certainly by the time Paul was writing in the 50s. And he makes several direct quotes, a few direct quotes, plus a lot of allusions to what Jesus said. Sometimes he even says, I, don't, I have a word of the Lord here, and he quotes it. And it comes straight out of what would be Q, what we think of as Q. And then Matthew and Luke both use that same source then in the writing of their Gospels. Now, uh, did he have a copy of that saying source? I don't know. Uh, it seems like he does. Just like it sometimes seems like he has a copy of the Septuagint on hand. He may be borrowing a copy. Uh, as I said, by some, from some rich Gentile former God-fearer, now a member of his church who had bought a copy, which would have been very expensive, by the way, but you'd have to be rich to be able to do that back then. But you also have to remember what he is. He's a highly trained Jewish rabbi, essentially. Trained by Gamaliel, would have known it in Hebrew, largely by heart, because one of the ways they trained was by memorization. But he also seems to have memorized the Greek translation of it. He doesn't seem to be retranslating from Hebrew into Greek. He's quoting the Septuagint. Well, what did he spend the three years out in the Arabian desert with God doing? I mean, he could have... That's a long time when you think about all mm-hmm. what he must have learned from Jesus himself during that time. We don't know. We don't know the details of it. And we don't know the details of what he picked up from other Jewish Christians. You can quote me here, Paul, when I... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what, what he ends up quoting actually is stuff that Jesus said according to the Gospels, which is yeah. very fascinating. When he does quote Jesus, you can find it in the Gospels. There's not a single time that he says that he's quoting Jesus 
that you can't find it in the Gospels. And there's plenty of allusions that he draws to sayings of Jesus from the Gospels that uh, uh, don't seem to, to stray outside the Gospel material, which is very fascinating. But you also have to remember that apart from the saying source of Jesus, the saying source of his, of his sayings, and some of the early, well, the traditions that, that incorporate Mark especially, uh, there, there isn't a whole lot else circulating around. And nothing in a written form except for Q that we know of. If it was in writing they got caught with it, they'd be dead, right? Well, not necessarily. It would depend on who caught them. The Romans caught them. Maybe. Well, you got to remember Jesus was an insurrectionist. It's bad enough that you're preaching about an insurrectionist, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, That'd be a bad hero. The first time. works of the New Testament that we have, other than what can be taken from Matthew and Luke uh, by, by source studies, are Paul's letters. First Thessalonians is probably the early, earliest letter in the New Testament, earliest writing in the New Testament. Now, the saying source found in Matthew and Luke predates that, yeah. but you have to... You have to derive it by a study between the two. When we finish Romans, after we break, after we finish Romans, we'll break for a period of time. Then we're going to come back, and I think we're going to study the Gospels parallel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke in parallel. Read them through in parallel. And see how Matthew and Luke, when, when there's nothing in Mark... That parallels it, how Matthew and Luke each addressed many of these same teachings and stories, and look at the teachings of Jesus. Having read through Romans, it'll be interesting to see the high degrees of, of parallel. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.